You've now arrived at the Inner Burghof, or inner courtyard, of the sprawling Hofburg Imperial Palace complex. The term Hofburg translates roughly as court fortress and refers to the entire network of palace buildings that occupies nearly a quarter of Vienna's first district. Where you stand now is just the largest enclosed courtyard within this complex, which also happens to be its oldest part and the seat of Austrian government since at least the late 1200s. The 13th century was a formative period in the history of the Austrian Empire. Within a span of just under four decades, Austria's first ruling family, the Babenbergs, died out. The Bohemian king, Schemschel Ottokar II, assumed rule, and Rudolf of Habsburg, a minor Swiss count who had formed an advantageous alliance with the Hungarian king Ladislaus IV, defeated Ottokar in the Battle of Marchfeld and took the throne. In 1278, Rudolf became the first monarch of Austria's most enduring familial dynasty, his descendants ruling for nearly six and a half centuries. At its peak, the Habsburg dominions were shared by two major European branches, Austrian and Spanish who, between them, controlled lands that included most of the European continent, with the exception of France and some of the Italian peninsula, stretching from Transylvania and the Balkans in the east, to the Netherlands and Flanders in the north, to the Iberian Peninsula in the west, and Naples, Sicily, and Sardinia in the south. It was under the Habsburgs that Spain experienced its so-called Age of Expansion, in which its colonial ambitions in Southeast Asia and the New World reached their zenith. This was a dynasty that truly shaped the course of world history, and its Austrian branch lived and ruled here in the Hofburg until 1918, when the First World War witnessed or directly led to the dissolution of all four of Europe's largest extant autocratic dynasties. That's the Romanovs of Russia, exiled in 1917 and executed the following year, the Habsburgs of Austria-Hungary, and the Hohenzollerns of the German Empire, both in 1918, and the Osmanhu of the Ottoman Empire in 1922. As you look at the architectural detail in the facades of the buildings around you, you'll start to notice their variety. In fact, the many tracts that make up the Hofburg Palace complex date to different periods and are usually named for the rulers who ordered and oversaw their construction. From your current perspective on the square, you're looking at around 600 years of construction history. The oldest portion is the Schweizer Tracht, or Swiss wing, set back a bit from the rest of the square by a fenced ditch and accessible through a red and black arch. I invite you now to enter it. As you do, you'll be crossing over what was once the original castle moat and emerging into the center of a square-shaped courtyard called the Schweizer Hof, or Swiss Court. The red and black gateway itself, called the Schweizer Tor, or Swiss Gate, dates from 1552 and owes its name to the Swiss Guard who once patrolled it. The Swiss military has a long history of hiring out mercenaries, soldiers for hire, especially to the Duchy of Lorraine, a region that once stretched from northern France to the Netherlands. In 1736, the scion of the House of Lorraine, Franz Stefan, married Austrian Habsburg Archduchess Maria Theresa, the eldest daughter of the Emperor, Karl VI. The young groom's personal guard, just over 100 Swiss soldiers, came with him when the couple moved into the Hofburg and ascended the throne upon the death of Maria Theresa's father in 1740. 
The service of the Swiss Guard in Vienna was short-lived, however. The couple's son, the next emperor, Joseph II, dissolved the regiment in 1767, and foreign military service by Swiss nationals was outlawed by the first Swiss federal constitution in the mid-19th century, with one exception, the 135 men who constitute the Pontifical Swiss Guard in the Vatican City in Rome. In 2006, they celebrated their 500th year of service there. Inside the smaller Schweizerhof courtyard, you've entered the oldest part of the palace complex, dating from the mid to late 13th century. Though since the facades were redone in the 17th century to make the architecture look more cohesive, it appears much more modern. The stairs on your right side as you enter the courtyard lead to the tiny Hofburgkapelle, the imperial chapel where the renowned Vienna Boys Choir, the Wiener Singer Knaben, has sung masses for more than 500 years. Ranging in age from 9 to 14 and divided into four choirs, including since 2017 a girls' choir, the roughly 100 young sopranos and altos give an average of 300 performances a year, ranging from Mahler at the Musikverein to Mozart at the Met to Schubert at the Sydney Opera House. Here at the Imperial Chapel, their performance at weekly Sunday Mass is free of charge and begins at 9.15 a.m., and if you show up an hour or so earlier, you might even get a spot inside. If you're interested in the chapel itself, feel free to poke your head into the foyer at the top of the stairs. If it's open, you'll probably be granted free access to have a look around. If it's closed, you can always head back outside, look for the exit from the Schweizerhof at its southeast corner, that's the opposite corner to where you entered the square, and take an immediate right. You'll be able to see the chapel's Gothic sacristy windows from the rear. Originally a late Romanesque structure built in the 1280s, this chapel was expanded under Albrecht V of Habsburg in the mid-1420s, when it got a Gothic facelift. Despite his success in substantially expanding the extent of Austrian rule through strategic marriage, military campaigns, and election as King of the Romans, an office which was occupied by his progeny nearly continually for almost 400 years, Albrecht V is principally remembered today as a vicious anti-Semite with a particularly bloody legacy. It was Albrecht V who ordered the first organized state-sanctioned persecutions and expulsions of the Viennese Jewish population that culminated in the Viennese Jezera in 1421, in which hundreds were forced from their homes, children were kidnapped and forced to convert, and ultimately 112 men and women were burned at the stake just outside of Vienna's city walls. True to character, Albrecht's architectural expansion of this chapel involved the desecration of Jewish gravestones and their use as building materials. This was discovered in the course of restoration work carried out in the early 20th century, at which point the tombstones that could be salvaged were moved to the Jewish cemetery in Seegasse, today's 9th district. If you're interested in the turbulent history of Vienna's Jewish population, I have an entire tour dedicated to the subject. Among its episodes, you'll find more information on the Vienna Jezera at the Judenplatz stop, as well as directions to and information on visiting the Seigasse Jewish Cemetery. Back in the Schweizerhof courtyard, tucked under the steps leading up to the chapel along its west side, you'll find the entrance to the Imperial Treasury, or Schatzkammer. This is a fascinating museum displaying many of the empire's most valuable artifacts, the crown jewels, 
many ornate reliquaries and monstrances, impeccably detailed royal robes and liturgical vestments, the nail that purportedly pierced the right hand of Christ, a piece of the supposed true cross, a particularly large narwhal horn, once believed to be a unicorn horn and said to possess magical healing powers, and a large shallow bowl carved from a single massive piece of agate, once believed to be the Holy Grail. But amongst all of these treasures, the most enigmatic item may actually be the fabled Spear of Destiny, or Holy Lance. Long held to be the same spear that a Roman centurion named Longinus thrust into Christ's right side as he hung on the cross, this spear has been a symbol of power in the hands of the emperors dating back to Constantine the Great and Charlemagne. According to legend, the possessor of the spear would increase his rule. A string of medieval German kings, Henry I, Otto I, Otto II, all convinced of its sacred powers, all carried the spear into decisive battles. But according to the legend, the spear's power is double-edged. While possessing it would bring victory, death awaited the man who let it fall. Charlemagne purportedly dropped it when his horse was startled on the way back from a successful campaign in Saxony in the year 813. Within weeks, he was dead. Frederick Barbarossa accidentally let it drop into a river while on campaign in Turkey in 1190. Accounts of his death differ, but what is certain is that he drowned. The spear's legendary appeal even extends to numerous military figures of modern European history. Napoleon sought its fabled power. In fact, until the French Revolutionary Army threatened to take Nuremberg in 1796, the spear was held there. It was initially moved to Vienna for safekeeping, but remained in Habsburg possession even after the city of Nuremberg had been secured and the Germans had requested its return. The conditions under which it was finally returned to Nuremberg are spine-chilling. When he annexed Austria in 1938, Adolf Hitler ordered the SS to seize the spear and a handful of other relics. According to an acquaintance who had known Hitler as a young starving artist while he was living in Vienna, Hitler had been entranced by the spear legend, even going so far as to claim in Mein Kampf that he felt it to be his own personal talisman, something he himself had carried in some earlier century, holding, quote, the destiny of the world in his hands. There is no doubt Hitler saw himself as the scion of a great German empire. This is also the reason for the term Third Reich, or Third Empire, the implication being that the Nazis were the heirs and successors to the first two German empires, the Holy Roman Empire from 800 to 1806, and the German Empire from 1871 to 1918. The spear for Hitler represented German hegemony in material form, and its purported link to the Passion of Christ tied that hegemony to a sense of religious legitimacy. But it seems he must have forgotten about the flip side of the legend. In mid-April 1945, American forces under General George S. Patton took the city of Nuremberg where the spear was held. Patton knew of Hitler's belief in the spear lore and made finding it a priority. Following a tip-off, American GIs were able to locate its hiding place in a wall on April 30th at around 3.30 p.m. One hour and 20 minutes later, Hitler was dead, having taken his own life in his Berlin bunker. Since there's no evidence that Hitler could have been informed about the spear's capture at the time of his suicide, interest in the legend of the spear's power was revitalized in the years following the end of the war. 
Some even claimed that the spear on display here at the Schatzkammer, returned by Patton after the war, is actually a fake. Depending on your source, the real spear may have been smuggled to Antarctica, taken to South America by fleeing Nazis, or is still in the hands of the Americans. In fact, in the early 2000s, the Schatzkammer allowed researchers to carry out various tests on the spear to determine its age. While the nail inserted into the center of the spearhead, purportedly taken from the cross of the crucifixion, does date to the first century AD, carbon dating identified the age of the spear itself as no older than mid-8th century AD. As you can probably imagine, proponents of the swapped spear theory cite this as evidence that the real spear has been replaced by a convincing but much younger fake. Making your way back to the Innere Burghof, exiting through the black and red Swiss gate over the old moat and onto the larger courtyard where we began this episode, you'll notice a large weathered bronze and masonry monument at the center of the square. On its main pillar stands one of the most pivotal figures in Austrian history, and the only one to be known as both the first and the second of his name. This is Franz, ruler at the time of the Napoleonic Wars depicted here wearing the Roman robes and laurel crown in accordance with the title he bore from 1792 until 1806, Franz II, Holy Roman Emperor. But his title changed partway through his reign. Faced with the looming prospect of defeat by Napoleon's armies, Franz preemptively announced the creation of the new Austrian Empire, declaring himself its first sovereign, Franz I. As it turns out, Franz didn't have long to wait before his fears were, in fact, realized. Napoleon defeated the Third Coalition in the disastrous Battle of Austerlitz in 1806, which prompted Franz to officially dissolve the centuries-old office of Holy Roman Emperor in order to avoid it falling into the hands of the self-styled French upstart. No longer was Franz both the second and the first, now he was just Franz I, Austrian Emperor. The difference may sound pedantic, but let's just take a moment to appreciate the scope of this decision. The office of Holy Roman Emperor had existed in some form since Charlemagne was crowned Emperor of the Romans on Christmas Day in the year 800. This was, officially at least, an elected office, chosen by a confederation of German princes, and consecrated by the Pope as protector of the Catholic faith since it was seen as the extension of the role taken by Constantine to promote and defend Christianity in the early 4th century. When, in 1806, Franz abolished this title, which had existed for more than 1,000 years at that point, he also had to stomach defeat by the French. Three years later, having recovered enough troops and allies to mount another attempt to topple Napoleon, Franz's fifth coalition also ended in defeat. This time, the French occupied Vienna, and during their ensuing peace negotiations, Austria was forced to give up significant territories, its losses amounting to 20% of its population and all of its Mediterranean ports. As if that weren't enough, Franz found himself in the diplomatically difficult situation of cobbling together a tenuous cooperation with Napoleon personally. Since the French emperor had dynastic ambitions and knew his first wife, Josephine, was too old to bear him children, this meant that Napoleon divorced Josephine and married France's daughter, Marie-Louise. 
Marrying off his first child to the hated French general was insult enough. Franz's humiliation was only intensified when Napoleon was finally defeated and exiled for good in 1815, leaving Marie-Louise with a four-year-old child, Napoleon II, the potentially dangerous heir of Franz's hated rival. The possibility that his grandson, Napoleon II, could become a rallying point for Bonapartists terrified the emperor and his advisors, so they kept the boy largely hidden away from the public, restricted to Schönbrunn Palace even as he grew sickly and died of tuberculosis at the age of only 21 in 1832. While Franz styled himself as an open and approachable sovereign and loving family man, he was ultimately remembered as cold, impersonal, and notoriously stingy. The Latin inscription on his monument testifies to this contradiction. It reads, Amorem meum populus meis, or I give my love to my people, to which locals purportedly replied, your love and nothing else, not a cent. According to another anecdote, locals joked that after Franz's death in 1835, his son and heir Ferdinand I of Austria, who suffered an intellectual disability due to childhood hydrocephalus, saw that the four female figures seated on the statue's plinth were depicted crying and attempted to comfort them. He approached, saying, don't cry, nothing's going to change. The joke on the street was that they replied with, that's exactly why we're crying, your majesty. If you're facing Franz II and turn to your right, you'll be looking directly at the Reichskanzleitracht, or Imperial Chancellery Tract of the Hofburg, from whose premises Franz ruled the Holy Roman Empire until its dissolution in 1806. During Napoleon's control of the city, this wing accommodated the French diplomat and French imperial marshal, Louis-Alexandre Berthier, who represented the French emperor's interests while he was away on campaigns. Later in the 19th century, the rooms were renovated to accommodate a suite of apartments for the royal family and occupied by Emperor Franz Josef I and his wife Elizabeth of Bavaria. Today, these imperial apartments make up a museum dedicated to her, Sisi, as she was affectionately known by her subjects, who was a kind of tragic 19th century Princess Diana figure. She was renowned throughout Europe for her beauty, as well as her famous disagreements with her mother-in-law, Archduchess Sophie Frederica of Bavaria, who was also her aunt, incidentally, since Franz Josef and Sisi were first cousins. Sisi disliked the public arena of the imperial court, the standard of beauty created around her, and the authority her status as an icon afforded her. Sadly, she became tormented by the constant pressure of living up to her own public image and suffered from a range of obsessive behaviors. Her curly, brown, floor-length hair occupied quite a bit of her time. Several hours each day were dedicated to combing and styling it, and every two weeks an entire day was needed to wash it, with a mixture of eggs and cognac. Her figure also became the focus of hypervigilance. At 5 foot 8, or 1 meter 73, she was strikingly tall for the period, but even after four pregnancies never exceeded a weight of just 110 pounds, or 50 kilos, and a corseted 18-inch or 45-centimeter waistline reducing it to just 16 inches or 40 centimeters at the height of her tight lacing phase following her third pregnancy. That's just slightly larger than the average circumference of an adult man's neck. In order to maintain this weight, 
She would exercise fiendishly and restrict herself to alternating periods of fasting and punishing daily diets of one orange and one form of protein, either the salted white of an egg, a glass of milk, or the liquid squeezed from raw ground beef. After her only son, the Crown Prince Rudolf, committed murder-suicide in a hunting lodge with his mistress in 1889, she retreated from court life and quietly toured Europe until September 10, 1898, when she was assassinated, stabbed in the heart with a shiv by anarchist Luigi Lucchini in Geneva. This museum contains many articles from the Empress's private life, displayed in the plush imperial rooms she once occupied. Its entrance is located in the spectacular dome-covered passageway you see before you. Speaking of this domed gateway, you'll see four impressive statues guarding its archways onto the square. These represent the labors of Hercules. The other four flank the arches facing the Heilerplatz, which are meant to represent the empire's epic feats on land and at sea. Remember, Austria wasn't always landlocked. Inside the dome are the entrance to the Sisi Museum and, just opposite, the entrance to the Spanische Hofreitschule, the Imperial Spanish Court Riding School home to the famous white lippets on our horses. This school continues to celebrate nearly five centuries of dressage, a kind of ballet on horseback with elaborate lunges, gait changes, and jumps, all demonstrating the incredible control the rider has over the horse. I discussed the history of this institution in my episode on the Stahlburg, their urban stables that were once a royal palace located just around the corner from here. While the Stahlburg is where the horses live while in town, their training and performances take place in the facility accessible through the entrance in the dome. The Spanish Riding School is, needless to say, a unique cultural institution. If it's something you're interested in experiencing firsthand, I recommend coming to a morning training session. Offered most days of the week and starting at 10 a.m., the morning practice is more affordable and allows a greater insight into the personalities of the horses and riders and their methods in developing show-ready technique. Your best bet is to come to the ticket office when it opens at 9 a.m. to buy your tickets, then head to the nearby Café Demel for breakfast before returning here around 9.45, at which point you can skip past the longer ticket purchase line to the much shorter line for those who already have their tickets and are ready to enter. This way, you'll probably also get a seat. From the larger rectangular courtyard where you began this episode, turn so the dome you came through earlier is now at your back. Continue through either pedestrian archway, the one on your left closer to the red and black Schweizer Tor has a string of small shops, and out onto the massive Heroes Square between the two equestrian statues. <laughs> 